0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, we look for hope everywhere, don't we? We have so many different definitions of what hope is. Recently, I was uh, driving for holiday travel and at a filling station, just got talking with the attendant there. I said, Happy New Year. And he says, well, yeah, I sure hope 2012 is a heck of a lot uh, better than 2011. I said, oh, it's been, been tough. Yeah, and he went into it. And there's, there's that kind of hope that we say, I I really do hope things will work out a little bit better. You know, I hope I won't, I won't get caught. Uh, my kids might say, I hope that, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, I'll get the job, uh, the relationship will work out. I hope. But in all of those senses of the word hope, things are very uncertain. They may depend on me. They may, may depend on others. They may just depend on what we would call chance. Who knows? I hope really means I wish. But then there's a whole another way of thinking about hope. I would say hope with a capital H, hope in the way that the Bible describes it. The Bible uses the word hope in that way, but in in, in a more important way as well, and that is as a certain or a confident expectation. Hope is something we can know is uh, at work in our lives. Hope is about something that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can count on. And where do we get that hope? I don't know if you saw this. Um, these two videos that were produced by this young man, Ben Breedlove. If you uh, Google his name, you haven't seen it. And it's been on ABC News and other outlets. Ben Breedlove, an 18-year-old kid living in Houston, Texas, for some reason, uh, just a few weeks ago, a little before Christmas, produced two videos And they're just him holding up index cards right in front of his camera. So you just see his face, sometimes looking very serious, sometimes with a really great smile on his face. And he's handwritten on these index cards the message that tells the story that he wants to tell. And in these two videos together, he talks about his struggle with heart disease. He's got the soundtrack. It's just instrumental in the background. Ironically, a group called Mad World, because he's talking about hypertrophic, Cardiomyopathy. That's why I'm a minister, because I've got to read words like that to pronounce them. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a deadly heart disease. And he's had it uh, as long as he can remember. And he describes three times in his life that he cheated death in his words. And he talks about each of those three times having what we would call a near-death experience. And it's like so many of them are. There's this bright light. There's a deep peace. And in the third one... He's in a room with his favorite rap star, Kid Cuddy. So apparently it's heaven. But what I found is interesting, um, he holds up these cards one by one. Two of the cards he he holds up describe this third time he cheated death when he's with the rapper. He finds himself looking in a mirror. His His first card says, I then looked at myself in the mirror. He puts it down. He picks up another card. He says, I was proud of myself all caps, myself, And he puts it down, he says, of my entire life, everything I have done. And you go, wow. And he said, his last card actually there in that sequence was, it was the best feeling. It makes us wonder, what would it take to feel that feeling? And what would it take for you to be able to look in your mirror? I mean, not in the future through near-death experience, but today to look in your mirror and to see yourself, and to be proud, and to think about everything that you've done your entire life, and to be proud. I mean, that's a kind of hope for which there's no accounting, it seems to me, unless God has done something special in his life, and does something special in ours. This is a hope that allows us to look at heart disease in the face and say, not a problem. Of course it's a problem. But there's something in my life that's bigger than every problem. And what is that? God's answer, in a word, koinonia. It's about relationship. Let's look at this first essential relationship of somebody who wants to live with hope. Would you open up your bulletin uh, again and look at this uh, movement number one, Alive in Christ, we share hope when we share Jesus' life. And let's read this verse from First Corinthians one nine aloud. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the hope that comes from God, from relationship with Jesus, is one that depends not on circumstances that are external to us, not on our own capabilities, but on the faithfulness of God. And you and I need to reflect, is the foundation of our hope this simple statement, God is faithful, or is it, geez, I sure hope I can get it done. Or boy, I hope this works out. Or I wish things were better. Hope of the capital H always rests upon the affirmation that God is faithful. And it's a relationship with him that allows us to hold on to that truth. He says, God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship. That's our word koinonia, or sharing of his son. It doesn't mean you're called into the church, that kind of a fellowship, not here. In fact, in the Greek, there's no word the there. and The NIV gives us a better translation, I think, where it said God has called you into fellowship with his son, into living, vital, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God has shared your sinful nature. In the resurrection, God has shared his life with us. On the cross, he shares our sin. In his ascension to heaven, he shares his track record so that when uh, the father looks now at you, he can say what he said to Jesus when Jesus was emerging from the waters of baptism, and that is, you are my child, beloved, with you, I am well pleased. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I can look in the mirror and feel that same feeling that Ben Breedlove felt or described in his... This is where hope begins. So, uh, number one, our first relationship, our first core experience of sharing hope is to become alive in Christ. We share hope when we share Jesus' life. His life gives us something that's bigger than our guilt, bigger than our addictions, bigger than our persistent anger, bigger than our losses, and bigger than our pain. And we do not need index cards or near-death experiences or even a rap star to make contact with that kind of hope. All we have to do is just take Jesus at his word. That you belong to me. and Everything that belongs to me, I share with you. We hold my life in common. Jesus knows you by name. You're not a number or an impersonal uh, creature to him. He knows you and he loves you. And he is with you in the midst of whatever burdens you carry today. So let me uh, give you a closing question here for this segment and invite you to participate. I invite you maybe to bow your head or close your eyes or whatever you need to focus a little bit. Um, Ben Breedlove left the world with two questions. I say that because he died shortly after that last video on Christmas Day. And his last two cards were these. He said, do you believe in angels or God? Then his final card, I do. So, two questions now for us. The first is this Do I believe in God? Do I? And secondly, where will I look for hope this week? My favorite scene in the movie The Godfather is a tender moment between a father and a son. Don Corleone is the uh, godfather. He has come to America to make a better life for himself and, more importantly, to make a better life for his family. And yet now he sits at the end of his life in a garden chair with his favorite son, Michael. Michael's the one he had shielded from the family business. Michael had gone off to war and become a war hero and he'd come back. And in this scene, Don Corleone shares with Michael, I just I'd always wanted you to have a different life. I I knew that your brothers would be sucked into crime, but I I thought that maybe you would be different, that you you would someday be called Governor Corleone, Senator Corleone. But the sadness of the moment is that uh, we now see at this part in the movie that Michael has been drawn inexorably into this vacuum of killing and revenge, the very thing that is tearing this family apart and tearing, in fact, the whole city uh, apart. And as I watched that scene, I remember that every one of us wants to have hope. We all want to have hope. And yet, hope works itself out in relationships or it is worth nothing at all. I wish for myself and for you that today I could invite you to bow your head and pray yourself into hope. I, I, I could invite you to hear such inspiring preaching that you go, Wow, I think I didn't hope before I came, but now I do hope. But i got to tell you, it doesn't work that way. Hope grows in the context of relationships. That's the way God does it. As an introvert, as an individualist, I wish it weren't so. But you've got to be connected. You've got to share relationship relationships with fellow believers in order to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So we come to that second essential relationship of sharing hope. We've got to come alive together. We share hope when we share in Jesus' body. Now, the word body in the Gospels, when it refers to Jesus, always refers to his physical flesh and blood. But in the epistles, the word body can refer to Jesus as physical flesh and blood, but it also begins to refer to something else, something broader. Jesus' physical flesh and blood embodied in now a community, in relationships, in what we call the church of Jesus Christ. This is what happens on Pentecost. You know the story. Jesus says, I'm taking my physical body up to the Father, but you stick around here because you're going to become my body. That which is left of me on the earth, and the Spirit of God will come down, and will fill this flesh and blood community with the activity of God that causes transformation and growth and love and grace in peace and in hope. So let's read our text together here. This is Acts two, forty-two. It's that same day, Luke gives us a description of what happened. On Pentecost, what broke out? And this is what he says. Let's read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's that word fellowship. That's koinonia. That's sharing. What are they sharing? They're sharing their lives. The first thing that is ever said to be wrong in the Bible is, it is not good for man to be alone. That's because God's plan for growth in your life and in mine involves relationship with one another. Sharing friendship. There's no way to have a personal, passionate, living relationship with Jesus Christ without without also having a personal, passionate, living relationship with other believers. It it just doesn't work that way. And so God has given us one another. And he's called us his body. John... Zesulius writes, the church is not simply an institution. It's a mode of existence, a way of being. The triune God is is personal and therefore can only be known in a relation of persons in personal love. Do you get that? The only way you can know God, a personal God, is in personal love. And so the uh, authority on spiritual renewal, Richard Lovelace writes, Ephesians 4 makes it quite clear that full spiritual vitality cannot be present in the church. Until its macro communities and micro communities consist of fully developed networks of Christians who are exercising their gifts and contributing to one another so that the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint, grows up into maturity in Christ its head. What keeps me from really benefiting from my own small group? It's fear. It's fear of sharing myself, of being known, of being accountable. It's fear of being bothered, frankly, by other people who want to be known and be accountable. I'm just scared of that. Recently in our small group, one of our members came and she was absolutely discouraged. She had been trying to mentor a group of women and it had all gone south and she'd lost total confidence in her ability to do that. She was sharing with the group in such a way that I thought she's probably going to throw the towel in and just quit the whole deal. Loving these women. What happened, though, was you watch one by one the members of the small group begin to encourage her and affirm her and say, you know what, you're absolutely the right person for this. None of us in the group listens the way you do. You've got a kind of a sensitivity and a wisdom about you. No, we believe God has you there. You've got to keep after that assignment. She told me later, as we prayed for her, not only did she feel closer to the group than ever, she felt closer to God than ever. Hope was rising in her heart. That's what happens. That's koinonia. That's the body of Christ at work. And it's magnetic. When people see that happening in your small group or in our church, they want to be a part of it because they've never seen something as authentic as real love. Spirit-inspired love. And that's why Luke says, as the church enjoyed this kind of fellowship, the Lord added to their number daily. I mean, that was their evangelistic program, to love each other. And everyone said, whoa. Whoa. How do I be a part of that? It's just how hope grows. It's how we become alive together. So, if you would again, maybe bow your head or close your eyes, but ask this question of Jesus: What step can I take towards deeper and healthier relationship in Christ's body? So we find hope through relationship with Jesus Christ, koinonia. We Find that hope grows through relationship with one another in the body of Christ. That's koinonia. Now we come to this third essential relationship of a life, in a life of a person who wants to share hope. And it's really how hope spreads. I call it living for the world. We share hope when we share Jesus' ministry. And finally, would you read this text with me? Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul says this. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now sharing in the gospel sharing that's our word koinonia several years ago one of our students had been invited to give a little message about christianity in his fraternity house and he he wrote this little thing and he gave it for all his frat brothers, and he actually did a really, really good job. And one of our staff members commented and said, John, that was, that was excellent. And he kind of looked down at his sneakers, you know, kind of a, a humility about him, shyly. And he said, oh, you know, shucks, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And the staff member said, well, if it had been Jesus, it would have been quite a bit better than that. <laughs> False humility aside... The amazing thing is that God uses us in the world through our relationships with people who have hurts and who have needs and who desperately need the hope that you and I have today. I got to tell you, it just blows my mind. God's primary strategy for for the hope of the world, you know what it is? It's you. That's scary. Look around this room. This is it. This is plan A. It's you. (laughs) You wonder about God's wisdom. He's all-knowing, and yet he's chosen you as his primary strategy for the hope of the world. What an awesome responsibility. What an exciting privilege. This is what our lives are all about. We're partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leslie Newbigin says, mission is hope in action. I love that. Paul believes that. He knows two things. If you step back from the verses we just read and you look at the whole paragraph there sometime at the beginning of Philippians, you see he knows two things. That all ministry is Jesus's and that Jesus shares it with us. Jesus is the originator, the motivator, and the fulfiller of all ministry. If you look at verse 6, he says, The one who began a good work in you will complete it. Who began the work in Philippi? Well, Luke tells us that one day Paul was the first follower of Jesus Christ to ever walk into Philippi and pronounce good news. But Paul says, no, no, no. Yeah, I was the first biped on two feet, but you know who began it? God began it. He's the one who begins ministry. He's the one who puts you in relationship with people. He wants to touch with his love. He's the one who motivates ministry. Verse 8, he says, I long for you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Because Paul says, frankly, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the right heart. I don't care enough. But Jesus cares so profoundly. And through his Holy Spirit, Jesus will put his compassion in your heart for the people in your life that are hardest to love, that are furthest from you, that are least, that are last, that are lost, and that, frankly, are prickly. And then finally, Paul says in verse 11, he talks about this harvest of righteousness. Righteousness. That's the fulfillment of ministry. Jesus does it all. You don't have to worry about the results of your ministry. When you take the risk to share love with another human being, you can know for sure that it is Jesus at work. And Jesus will fulfill. He's the one. But you've got to take the step towards that person in love. All ministry is Jesus's, but Jesus shares it with us. That's the second thing Paul knows. Paul knows. The day Jesus was risen from the dead, he didn't waste any time. He walked into that room where his disciples were cowering. They were hiding. And he goes, guess what, boys? I got news for you. You know how the Father has sent me to earth to love the earth with my life, to give it hope? Well, I'm taking out. I'm checking out. of, I'm going to head up to my father, but I'm going to leave you behind to continue the work. Us? Yes. He says, as the Father has sent me. So I send you, you. When I was in grad school, I had the privilege of doing an internship at Massachusetts General Hospital. And while I was there, I got invited to look over the shoulder of one of the greatest surgeons alive at that time. He was one of the only people on the planet that performed what's now called off-pump surgery. Surgery on a beating heart. He says, George, I get up at five in the morning and I operate on beating hearts all day long till ten at night, whether they're human or, or otherwise. He was pioneering this new technique and I got to stand on a step stool right behind him, literally touching his right shoulder as he opened up a human heart. And I, I, I saw a human heart beating in front of, I hope not many of you have seen that. It's one of the most sacred experiences of my life to look in and see that happen. And I want to think about what Jesus has done for us. I think, what would happen if this great surgeon had said, George, uh, would you just reach around me and grab this suture for a second? And just hold it. <laughs> you know, and then what if, what if he said, you yeah, know, I'm hungry. You finish this and walks out of the room. Very unwise. But that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He said, I got this thing started. Now you finish it. You give the world hope. Jesus has strategically located each and every one of us. We are embedded in a network of relationships right now. There's nobody else ever in history who has or will have the relationship that you have to the people in your life. God has put you there for a purpose. Some of those people are hard to love. Some of them are a delight to love. It doesn't matter. Your assignment is to love them, to reach out in relationship to them and share their hurts and their needs And you know what? It's good news for them and it's good news for us. What a great mission. We're hope givers. So I want to leave you now with another question. A question again to ask of Jesus. Two questions. And the first one is this. Ask Jesus, who hurts in my world? And secondly, what have you given me that I can share with them this week?